from the Treehouse Foundation, Welcome to Innovate, a podcast that features the voices of the re-envisioning foster care in America champions, folks who are working diligently to change the foster care narrative across the country. When we hear the word CASA, we think of an organization of people who are well-intended, who mean well and want to use their resources and opportunity to come and save black and brown kids. They don't understand us. They don't try to understand us. They just feel like they have what it takes to change us, change how we show up in the world, change how we talk. And so when the former CEO, Wendy Julian, said, Charity, I think you should apply for CASA. I was like, girl, you know I'm crazy. They're not ready for this. And so when I came on board, it wasn't one of those interviews where, you know, you go in as a black and brown person. You're like, let me just say what I need to say to get in the door. And then once I'm in, I'm going to make change. I came in very clear that I'm going to be coming in talking about social justice, racial justice. I'm going to do away with any white saviorism that still exists. I said, I'm here to have positive outcomes for my sisters and brothers. And if anyone gets in my way, then it's just going to be, it's just not going to work for me. So am I the girl for you or not? (laughs) They're like, yes. Once I realized that there's this case plan that has so much that it dictates over your life, but yet there's not one sentence that a person who you're talking about has actually written that goes to the judge so that the judge may say, oh, this is the handwriting of the individual that I'm about to make a choice upon. This piece of paper for me said there was no other viable resource for me to go live with. And so the result of that is that I ended up aging out. But about three years ago, I go to a family reunion. I had four uncles and aunts who were foster adoptive parents for over 35 years. And so my theory is if you ask young people more often, if they're able to input their own information, that it might actually create different threads that we can go down that will lead to permanency, that will lead to a better life outcome. In 2010, the Treehouse Foundation launched a movement to re-envision foster care in America. And in addition to hosting eight national conferences, Treehouse also honors foster care alumni who are inspiring a re-envisioning of foster care through awarding them with this honor for their outstanding leadership and innovation. My name is Angela Tucker. I am a transracial adoptee and I spend a lot of my time mentoring youth adopted from foster care. I am honored to be named a REFCA champion and I am your host. Today on Innovate, I'll be speaking to Charity Chandler-Cole and Sixto Cancel. Charity is the CEO of CASA, the court-appointed special advocates of Los Angeles. When she was 16, she was caught stealing underwear in a South LA store, then she was sent to juvenile hall, and then wound up in foster care. She now, as CEO, has the awesome opportunity to upend the status quo of our child welfare system. She's the chairwoman of the board for the Anti-Recidivism Coalition and commissioner with LA County Children and Families, where she is the co-chair of its Racial Justice Committee. She has a master's degree in public administration from Cal State Northridge, a bachelor's degree in communication studies from Loyola Marymount, and is currently finishing a doctorate in educational leadership for social justice at Loyola. Sixto Cancel is the founder of Think of Us, a nonprofit dedicated to innovating with data, technology, and multimedia to serve vulnerable populations. He was placed in his first foster family when he was 11 months old and aged out of the system at 23. 
In addition to being named a Refka champion, he has also been honored as a White House champion of change. He was named one of Forbes' top 30 under 30 social entrepreneurs, amongst many other accolades. He is a member of the National Foster Care Youth and Alumni Policy Council, which provides policy recommendations to the administration for children and families for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. As a Foster Club All Star, Cancel was invited to President Obama's inauguration to represent youth in foster care. Congrats on being named a Refka champion! Welcome to the show. Thank you, Angela. So glad to be here today. I'm super excited to be here today. Charity, you're the first Black leader of Casa LA, and I think you're the first leader who has lived experience. I believe that's true nationwide, actually. So I think I'm the first former foster youth to ever lead a CASA program. I kind of want to know: is that okay? CASA, its histories are are rooted in kind of white women, middle class, like thinking they know what's best for a child. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's interesting to note that you are the first. It's interesting because when I first started, everyone was just congratulations, the first Black CEO. It made headlines. It was in the newspaper. Everyone wanted to talk about me being the first Black CEO, and I said, "Y'all, that is a problem." <laughs> Not only is it a problem that I'm the first, not only Black CEO, person of color, former foster youth, that's not something I personally want to praise and congratulate. And I told my team, like, I don't want to take any more press or calls about this. I want to focus on why it's important this right now to have someone that has that proximity and lived experience、um, running this program. Yes, it's cute, very cute for whatever checkbox you have to check that we have a black CEO,、um, our assistant impacted CEO. But that also shows and amplifies and even highlights a problem that you know has been inherent with Casa. And I can say this as as a Casa CEO that yes. Casa, in my opinion, you know, had some challenges, had some flaws. You know, it was rooted in you know white saviorism. This idea that we need you know rich white folks to come in and save our black and brown children. I would say since then, there's been a lot of reckoning with that, with that history, with the fact that we don't need saviors coming in. We need we don't even need allies. <laughs> we need co-conspirators、um, coming in, ready to. Get in the trenches, draw arms in support of our underserved, undervalued, oppressed communities, and finally do something about it. And use our、um, our privilege, our platforms, our networks, our resources in response to that. And I also want to just、uh, point out, Charity, that I think you holding the position is also symbolic of something greater, which is for a long time, not just Casa, but many of the nonprofits, those who get to lead are those who have the privilege and not being able to、um, have a high financial compensation. Those who have the privilege to be able to work th- their networks to be able to be、um, a person that the search committee would look at. And what we're seeing over the last kind of five years. Is that more of us with lived experience are actually stepping into positions of leadership because we have been finding the pathways to break through the ceiling glass to be actually at the not just at the table but to lead organizations. I've talked with a lot of the Refka champions about the need for people with lived experience to be running the show in in different facets of child welfare. I really want to get specific about why that is important. And one of those things makes me think about 
your history, Charity, and just understanding having been in juvie, I'm not sure your full experience, but I'm just wondering, like, is that one example of why it's important for people like us to be at the helm? Absolutely, because what led me to even getting involved with the juvenile justice system stemmed from poverty. It stemmed from having to do things to survive. I didn't go to juvie because I was, you know, involved in a bank robbery. I was selling food and clothing, underwear (laughs) for my siblings. When I say that I was afraid to apply for certain jobs or be in certain patient in places because of my past, it had to do with being in juvie, you know, being um, getting involved in the criminal justice system, but even more so because of the trauma I experienced in the foster care system. I was sexually abused and exploited in the foster care system. I was convinced that because of my past, because of what I've been through, because I was a poor black girl from L.A., people like me can't get anywhere already. But if we have all of these other stigmas associated with ourselves, the trauma, the sexual exploitation, being involved in juvenile hall or any type of imprisonment, that it's almost impossible for people like me to, you know, lead in these spaces. But then I also had a fear of people even knowing. When I think of Black people in leadership or when I thought of black people in leadership. They didn't look like charity. They had, they were so put together. They had degrees. They were refined. They presented themselves as something that wasn't prevalent in our communities. The code switch was real. And so for me coming into this space, I knew one that I was very ashamed of my past because I was taught to be ashamed of my past. I wasn't taught to look at it as being, you know, as being victimized by it, as being in a situation where I was the person that was a victim in this situation. And so I carried that burden and guilt and shame for so long that it hindered me from even speaking up or stepping in spaces because I was afraid people would say, whoa, you're the foster youth, shut up. Whoa, you're the girl that was in juvenile hall, shut up. So I didn't want to be looked at are conceived in those ways. But when it got to the point where I was so tired and I brought life into this world, I was bringing a black child into this world. None of that mattered anymore. Yes, it was still scary. I was still afraid. But now it was my son and being incarcerated in juvie and in foster care and seeing so many girls and boys that look like you who have been told the exact same thing you've been told and realizing that we didn't have someone to look up to that looked like us that made it and succeeded. I wanted to prove the unthinkable for all of them. Sixto, same question for you around what like tangibly are the value add to have people with lived experience working? And maybe the the other side is, is there space for people who haven't lived this experience within child welfare programming and initiatives? And what does that look like? So the first thing that comes to mind is that I almost sometimes am saddened and a little bit resentful that we actually have to continuously have the conversation why lived experience needs to be at the table. But for the sake of the conversation, I'll dig in just a bit here. Um, and I'll say that, you know, why lived experience is so important, it's because of proximity. We have spent a whole century plus trying to solve problems from the from a distance. And so when you solve problems from a distance for other people, you don't understand the nuance of their experience. And the nuance of the experience, just like Charity said, I was not a criminal. I was trying to survive, right? When you think of why were you put in juvenile justice facility, there's a whole narrative that people start to think, 
thinking right off just from hearing those words. But when you dig into it, like 64% of the cases in child welfare, something called neglect, something called poverty. We built a system that was supposed to quote, quote, protect us from these abusers and these people who are doing bad things. But most of the people in the foster care system, that is not their story. Okay. And then you ask the second question here around, well, is there room for people without lived experience? There is room for people without lived experience, but let me be clear, you better be woke. And that is actually the problem when you're not woke enough and you're not proximate enough to the actual experiences that this trauma has been. And you're not proximate enough to the intersectionalities that people are coming in with, whether that be race, whether that be their sexual orientation, gender expression, identity. And so for me, what I would say to folks who want to do this work is you have a lot of work to do to be at this table as a well-equipped person who doesn't do good with unintended consequences. Consequences, Because what we've seen in this system is that a lot of the harm that I believe we can trace back to system induced trauma come from very well intended people. What I often see are organizations who feel like they are bringing people in with lived experience to be on a panel to inspire. That is not what I think both of you are doing. (laughs) Can you talk about that? Another word for it is exploitation. (laughs) So when I started my journey into trying to, you know, be a part of fixing the system, I realized that people were reaching out to me left and right to sit on a panel and talk about this and come to their fundraiser. And I didn't realize I was being exploited for my story until I sat on a panel and I found out the white lady next to me who did a lot of research about people like me was got a $25,000 check to sit on that panel. Guess what I got? I got a $25 gas card, okay? And so that's when I realized, wow, my story being the probably the only thing that brings proximity for these people to the issue and that's driving you know, their fundraising efforts or their narrative change is the most powerful piece of all this, but it's taken for granted, it's taken advantage of, it's being exploited. I'm told how to tell my story. Um, and then I put a stop to it there. And I've been intentional about letting people know, especially our my sisters and brothers in the system, that you will not, your story's not for sale. Um, and if it is, you get to pick how much people pay for it. You get to pick what parts of it you get to tell. And you get to be a part of how you want that narrative to be used. Um, and you, speaking to organizations and letting them know that you can't continue to use our stories for your own benefit, but yet you won't hire us in for leadership positions. We're not a part of, you know, the strategy planning. And so for me, I've just seen so much exploitation when it comes to telling our stories. I just feel like our narratives have been taken for granted. They have been exploited. And um, I think us being in leadership positions, we understand that differently. So when we do ask people to talk about their past, it's it's different and they're able to utilize it in the way they seem fit and they're paid for it. One of the things that I believe um, we have to do is integrate lived experience. So one way that we do that here at Think of Us, right, is that we have been doing moments where you have thousands of people who are literally sharing their experiences with us in open word um, text form and multiple choice um, forms. And then we take all of that data. We have over the last year, we have interacted with 38,000 current and former false youth. 38,000. And we take that data and then we, we run a word count 
What are the top words that are coming in from these open questions? And then we've built our programming off of that. We've turned around, taken that data, delivered it to every single state head and said, here are what thousands of current and former foster you've said they need in your state. We've taken that data to Congress and said, you are drafting bills, but you have not fully included lived experience in this because you've been able to talk to a couple of folks. But what are the masses and thousands are saying? Can we talk a little more about Think of Us? I loved some description online that one of the solutions is to hack the case management system with a software-based alteration. What does that mean? We started off trying to develop this app that would empower young people to have a voice in their case plan because the case plan dictates so much of our lives. We are now 30 people. We're getting ready to hire another 16 folks. And so we are growing rapidly because we're solving real solutions. And the key to it has not been just the technology or the data. The key to it has been actually centering lived experience. And then once you center that in the design, then you can use the tools of tech and so forth to actually create real solutions. I think it's always been a journey of like, how do you improve the system, right? And I think once I realized that there's this case plan that has so much that it dictates over your life, but yet there's not one sentence that a person who you're talking about has actually written that goes to the judge so that the judge may say, oh, this is the handwriting of the individual that I'm about to make a choice upon. There's a piece of paper that will literally have sentences about your life. And so this piece of paper for me said there was no other viable resource for me to go live with. And so what that did was it told every single worker after that worker had written that to not explore family, to not ask me questions around family. And so the result of that is that I ended up aging out. But about three years ago, I'm in Spanish Harlem. I go to a family reunion that I didn't even know was happening that morning. I find out about it, walk in, meet family. I have four uncles and aunts who were foster adoptive parents for over 35 years, longer than I have been alive. The words that we write are so dangerous. Because that one sentence of no viable resource available meant that no other worker said, well, let me revisit that. Maybe the worker didn't ask the right questions. Maybe there's a now a now viable resource. So our, our behavior is being dictated in the system depending on what is actually being written. And so my theory is if you ask young people more often, if they're able to input their own information, that it might actually create different threads that we can go down that will lead to permanency, that will lead to a better life outcome. Charity, there's been a lot of chatter about initiatives that prevent children from going into the foster care system in the first place. And I'm really excited about this, but simultaneously worried that strategies to do this have to include some type of profiling. I don't know. What, what, do, what do your initiatives look like? 
What's so great about CASA LA, you know, Sixto mentioned earlier the reports. We get to write reports that the judges look at and make determinations off of a children's life. We have power in the courts, yes. power that can be very scary in the wrong hands and power that can be used for good in the right hands. So we get to make recommendations that's trauma-informed and culturally competent, culturally responsive for these young people. And for me, seeing that we have this platform where we can help decide if a child is placed with family, if they're adopted, if they're receiving the services they need. I said, why not use this platform to step into the realm of prevention? Why not work to prevent more young people from entering the system? And we're not profiling at all. We're saying we're starting with our youth that are expecting and parenting. We know the statistics are very high for children that have children that are in the system, their kids going into the system. So we're starting there. And we're saying we're going to prevent any child that is in the foster care system and has a child from their kid entering the system because what we don't get to do is fail you while you're in the system and then turn around and take your child. I'm thinking about how all your friends reacted when you told them you took this job. You're the CEO of Casa LA. So in my community, when we hear the word Casa, we think of an organization or we thought of an organization um, and maybe some still think this because it's still it, it's probably still true in many places. It's definitely not, not in Casa L.A. We think of an organization of people who are well intended, who mean well and want to use their resources and opportunity to come and save black and brown kids. Um, they don't understand us. They don't try to understand us. They just feel like they have what it takes to change us, um, change how we show up in the world, change how we talk change our vernacular, change how we present ourselves and, and save us from these parents that are just so abusive that are causing us so much harm and that we need to be rescued. There's no you know, context behind what happened with that family. There's no talk of, of poverty. There's no linkage to neglect in poverty. And there's just people coming in, making decisions that would ultimately end in adoption with children who need to be taken from their families and placed somewhere else because where they are is just not... It's not it for them. And so when the former CEO, Wendy Julian, who's amazing, and I sat with her on the commission for children and families, said, Charity, I think you should apply for CASA. I was like, girl, you know I'm crazy. They're not ready for this. And she was like, no, they, they're ready. They're ready. And so when I came on board, um, I made it. It wasn't one of those interviews where, you know, you go in as a black and brown person. You're like, let me just say what I need to say to get in the door. And then once I'm in, I'm going to make change. I came in very clear that my advocacy will not be tied to my paycheck. I'm going to be coming in talking about social justice, racial justice. Um, we're not we're going to do away with any white saviorism that still exists. These are words I said in my job interview. I said I will have zero parts in none of that. You know, I'm here to have positive outcomes for my sisters and brothers. And if anyone gets in my way, then it's just going to be it's just not going to work for me. So am I the girl for you or not? <laughs> They're like, yes. Sixto, please share a little more about collaboration. And so I know you are collaborating all over the place. Tell us what you're doing and then tell us about some of those solutions that are being implemented. Like what's really exciting right now for you? I will tell you that's really exciting in our book right now. We are running this state kinship care navigation program in the state of California. We've expanded that for a one-year program also for adoptive families. And what this program is, it's actually putting community responders who have li lived experience and not all of the team has lived experience, but most of them do, where they're responding to the needs of kin care providers. So grandma, uncle, aunt, 
who may need really basic needs. We just had one um, grandparent who has six young people, right? And what they need is food. They need those basic kind of resources to keep that family together from disrupting. And so how do we wrap around these different families without being super intrusive into their lives? So I'm not asking you to sign up for a brand new program. We're simply saying, look, when stuff hits the fan and you need a resource, call us. We're going to do the paperwork for you. We're not going to do a, a list of resources and then have you go off. We'll go ahead and check the provider. We'll go ahead and see what's the eligibility. And we'll do that upfront grunt work for you because if you are on this journey, we should be treating you just like a major donor who just gave us a million dollars, which is mm-hmm. how do I make this super easy for you to do the work? And then I'm super excited about the Center for Lived Experience. Um, I believe that participatory research and the way that we are collecting data is critical to inform all the reforms that are happening because of COVID, but also in spite of COVID, there was already a tipping point coming. There was already momentum around how do we do this differently with the passage of Family First, whether you agree with it or not, it changes the rules, it changes how money flows. That creates opportunity. And so with all of this new opportunity, how might we integrate lived experience data so much that it will actually influence what's about to be implemented. I will be finishing each episode asking each guest to finish this sentence. So for both of you, finish this sentence. The future of foster care is? You know, I'm an abolitionist and I don't think our foster care system in the way that it exists um, was meant for my community and people like me. I think we need to have we need to put more emphasis on community in the village. I do think we need to have safeguards in place for children that actually need it. In LA County, 88% of our kids don't need to be in the system. So in the 12% that do, we have no time to focus on them. And those are the cases that you hear of kids ending up, you know, dead. And so we need to get rid of our foster care system completely. We need to put the power of the community back into the community agency, back into our parents, um, look at our parents and our families through a different lens. It just doesn't need to exist in the way it exists. So the future of foster care is obsolete and something is created in its place that's healing and restorative to our communities. I would say for me, the future of foster care is rooted in healing, development, and really positions people to thrive. When I think about what the future looks like, how do we take the average of $800 that goes to um, a foster parent and how do we route that over to grandma who's taking in her grandchildren? How do we ensure that we do our homework around healing from trauma that doesn't just result in talking to a therapist or medication, psychotropic medications? How might we have more healing modalities accessible to us? And then despite all of the trauma that we've been through, how is it that we experience, the system sets up experiences that in enables um, young people to truly be able to develop certain skill sets, mindsets, um, because we're in the community. We're in community-based organizations. We're participating in things that are so fruitful that it positions us to thrive way beyond folks who don't have literally hundreds of thousands of dollars of government dollars wrapping around them. That's it. (laughs) And that's that's where we end. Thank you both so much for this conversation. It's really inspiring. absolutely obvious why both of you would be a Refka champion. Incredible leaders, visionary, and, and it's exciting to know that the future is in your hands. So thank you so much. 
To learn more about the Refka Champions and the Treehouse Foundation's Re-Envisioning Foster Care in America movement, please go to treehousefoundation.net. And I hope you'll join me next week for another episode of the Innovate Podcast.